0: Really not much else to announce. We do have a Bible study coming up next week, beginning of the third month, and then Pentecost on the 12th, so things are moving along through the year. Last week we started in on the subject of wisdom. I had in mind to get to the book of James, and I didn't mean wisdom, I meant faith. I had in mind to get to the book of James, but we went to Hebrews and other places instead, And we looked at the basis of wisdom. And for a brief review, we went through and showed how God has created all that we see around us, the incredible complexities, and just looking at the intelligence that was required, the incredible planning and creativity, and then the power to make it all come together and actually happen attests to the fact that there has to be a living, powerful God. So the very basis of our faith is what we look around and see. And we look in the mirror even and see. We may not be uh, as beautiful as we'd like to be or whatever, but the incredible fact that we as a living being can stand in front of a mirror and see what God has put together in His image Uh, is such a powerful testimony that there has to be a God. So the basis of faith, then, God shows us, and we saw in many scriptures, is to look around at what he has done and realize that even though we don't see him now, uh, we see what he has done, and that he had to be here, and that he still has to be here, to even sustain all that has been created, lest it come apart. Now, let's get into the book of James today, uh, because this book is essentially about faith. I'm going to have a a bit of a detour uh, as well today, but it all has the same basis. So, the book of James, he says, he is a servant of God and of the Lord Emmanuel. To the twelve tribes, which are scattered abroad, greeting. So, he's writing to... Israelites that were scattered into many, many different lands. You'll recall in Acts 2 that there were uh, Israelites from many, many different nations gathered there at Pentecost, or at least who came to see what was going on there at Pentecost. Uh, So they had come for the festival, and God was doing something special that festival, so all those Jews who had come... Uh, spoke many different languages, and a miracle was given that they might even hear in their own language. So he's writing to the twelve tribes scattered abroad. And the church, spiritual Israel today, is scattered around the world, scattered into many different groups and organizations, and even individuals here and there who are pretty much on their own, who are still seeking to be faithful to God and to His Word. So, James is writing to those of us upon whom the ends of the age have come. So, when he speaks to the scattered brethren, he's talking directly to us through the page, through the annals of history and through the pages of this prophecy that was written down back then. It had a local application, but has its bigger application today. Had he not written this book, we would have suffered a great loss, uh, because it's a very, very powerful book. And he starts out (laughs) acknowledging uh, the situation as it was and as it is today. My brothers, count it all joy when you fall into different temptations. Uh, Test of our obedience of our real faith and belief is a difficult thing because we're human and all kinds of temptations and desires and various things come before us. And he said, count that joy. Now, to you and me, when we're trying to do what's right, temptation is a very difficult thing that we certainly don't like But he says to count it as joy when you have these trials, these tests, these temptations, knowing this, and here's why, that the trying of your faith works patience. So things will come along that will make us question, and that's really the topic here in this book, that will make us question even our own faith in God. Things will get so bad around us, in us, they would make us even question whether there is a God and whether He cares for us. Now, it's easy to get sidetracked to that point where you become insecure and you begin to question and you begin perhaps to doubt even. Now, that's why I started out showing last week that the basis of faith is to be able to go out And look at what you can see in the daytime and at night at what God has done. And reaffirm that there had to be a creator. And if there is a creator who made us in his image, then he cared enough to so carefully design us so so complexly and to give us a purpose and a reason for being here on this earth for this short period of time we're here And that is eternity in his kingdom of peace and happiness. So he says, when temptations come, they'll be difficult. They might even make you doubt. But count them joy because the fact that your faith is being tested, questioned, undermined, helps you have patience. Now, how is patience tied in? Well, it seems like the kingdom of God just never gets here. <laughs> but the prophecies that he has made uh, are slow in happening. Habakkuk recognized that, as did other prophets. So, that tries our trust. That makes us at sometimes perhaps even begin to question our trust in God, is because it happened hasn't happened now when we wanted it. That we have to wait until God's time is right. So that helps build patience, which is an attribute of God that we need to have. So he says in Matthew 24, did not Christ, those who endure to the end, who don't give up, who don't question, who don't doubt, who have firmly in mind where they're headed, and they know that God is doing his best to get them there. So they endure patiently waiting. Then he explains it a little more. But let patience have her perfect work. Don't be impatient while you wait, but let the development of patience through temptations and trials have a perfect work uh, and entire wanting nothing. So, Trials, troubles, tribulations, accepting them with equanimity, with joy, with realization that it's for our spiritual benefit that these things happen around us and to us so that we can become mature, lacking nothing. Now, he ties another attribute in here in verse 5. If any man of you, or any of you, uh, lack wisdom... Let him ask of God that gives to all men liberally, and upbraids not, and it shall be given him. Now, why did he bring wisdom in here? He's opening up about faith, and about trials and troubles, and having patience, uh, so that we can wait until that faith is warranted, that the things that we have been trusting and waiting for actually do happen. Now, we're going to examine wisdom here in the light of this, because since we examined the very basis of faith last week, today we'll examine the basis of wisdom, because they are inexorably tied together, faith and wisdom. Wisdom essentially means the knowledge or understanding to live correctly, to live right, to manage your life in a godly way is what wisdom really is. When Solomon asked for wisdom, God gave him wisdom to manage his own life, and he gave him understanding and knowledge in how to manage all of Israel's lives. Now, at some point, he began to... Abuse that, especially in his personal life, he didn't use the wisdom he had been given, but it was there. Now, the fact that he lost a certain amount of that wisdom, or maybe he didn't completely lose it, but he failed to apply it, and even the book of Ecclesiastes shows that he still had it, even though he had made a lot of mistakes and had damaged his relationship with God. And yet, he told us there in Ecclesiastes that the whole duty of man is to fear God and serve Him. Let's go to some scriptures here. Well, first of all, uh, there's a word in this particular verse 5 that has always been a bit of an enigma to me. I didn't know exactly, perhaps, how to define it. It says, Let... If you lack the ask God that gives men liberally and upbraids not. Well, what does upbraids mean? It's not a word you and I use. So I looked it up. It means to defame, to put down, uh, attack the character, integrity of, to rail at, scream, yell, defy, to chide, and what I liked really is to taunt or cast in the teeth, or revile, or places that the same Greek word are used in the New Testament. So, God is a God of love and of mercy, and He cares about us. So, if we ask for gifts from Him, He is not one to taunt us, or to put us down, or to be famous. Now, Christ expressed that in the Sermon on the Mount, when He said that if a Son asks for a fish, will he give him a scorpion or a snake, whichever it was? Uh, you know, is, is the father taunting that child? Is he putting that child down? Or does he really have love for the child? And if he needs fish to eat, will he give him a fish? Or will he give him a serpent? No. Uh, a father of love will give good things to his child. So he's saying here that God's attitude and God's mentality. His whole mindset is to give us those things we need to prepare us for the kingdom of God. That's what he's doing. That's what he's there for, to prepare his children. So if we lack, it's not that he denies us and looks down upon us or taunts us and says, Well, you're not like me. Why should I give you my wisdom? No, he doesn't do that. He's willing to give it. And in verse 6, he says, but let him ask in faith nothing wavering. If we we have a a lack, be it wisdom or be it something else, we can't waver when we ask. We can't be doubtful. We can't be double-minded in that sense. We have to ask in trust, in faith, in belief that God will fulfill his promises and give those things to us as his children, that we ask for. Now, is that such a great thing to ask? Is it such a great thing for a father to look at his child and say, well, what do you want to eat? No, a father doesn't look at his kid that way. He knows that child gets hungry, and he's always willing to feed. He'll work long hours and two jobs to be sure his family gets fed, if he has to. And God is the same way. So why should we look up at our father and say, Well, I know you really don't want to feed me, uh, but I'm going to ask for a fish anyway. I don't expect it, but I'm going to ask. Are we having dinner tonight, Daddy or Mommy? Well, no, son, I thought we'd just whale breakfast. No, we don't do our child that way. And God doesn't have that attitude either. So he says, you know, be like a little child who says, Mommy, what are we having for dinner? The the child isn't even questioning if he's going to have dinner. He's only asking what? Because he knows that her history is he'll eat. And we need to know from reading the Bible that God's history is, if we ask in faith, he provides. Hebrews 11 is full of stories of that. So, he said here that we have to wait patiently, and when temptations come, we're not to lose faith, not to lose trust, that God has our best interests in mind. Now, he brings up wisdom. Let's examine wisdom today in the light of what James is trying to explain to us about faith and trust in God. First of all, back to Second Chronicles 19. Second Chronicles 19. Now, here's a story that plays out where Jehoshaphat was king of Judah, and he was working with the king of Israel, Ahab, at the time. And uh, they were talking about going to war and didn't know where to go. So they asked different of the prophets, and then they asked a prophet that uh, always said evil things, and they didn't really know who to listen to. And as a result, uh, Ahab got killed in battle, and Jehoshaphat returned to Jerusalem. And because of their, I guess you'd have to say, lack of faith and trust in God, and going strictly to him, and not asking here, there, and everywhere, uh, that he got in trouble. So when Jehoshaphat returned uh, to Jerusalem, Jehu the son of Hananiah the seer went out to meet him, in verse 2, and said to king Jehoshaphat, should you help the ungodly and love them that hate the eternal? Why are you working with an ungodly king and with ungodly prophets, in a sense, or I mean in uh, in a nutshell? Therefore is wrath upon you from before the eternal. So he says, what you did here uh, was not entirely right. In fact, some of it was wrong, and God's angry with you. Nevertheless, now here is something to encourage us. Nevertheless, even though God's angry, there are good things found in you, in that you have taken away the groves out of the land and have prepared your heart to seek God. So he says, Jehoshaphat, you've made some mistakes. God's not happy with this last deal. Uh, but there are some redeeming factors here. And they are this. You've gotten rid of the idol worship. And you've prepared your heart to seek God. And then he stayed in Jerusalem. Uh, and end of verse 4, brought them back to the eternal God of their fathers. Now that's an important thing is that a leader turn the hearts to their fathers. Don't we read that in the end of Malachi? And he set judges in the land throughout all the fenced cities of Judah, city by city. And not only did he put judges or magistrates there, he said to them, Take heed. Be careful. Think what you do. For you judge not for man, but for the Eternal who is with you in the Judgment. In other words, he's telling them to be circumspect. Maybe have a certain amount of fear. Heed and indicates some nervousness, some concern. And then he says in verse 7 very clearly, Wherefore now, let the fear of the eternal be upon you. Not only take heed, not only think, but in addition to that, let fear come upon you. Of the eternal. Take heed and do it, for there is no iniquity with the eternal our God, nor respect of persons, nor taking of gifts. So he said, You're to be like God, and you're to have these same characteristics God has. Don't have any iniquity, don't respect people in your judgments, and don't take gifts that pervert the heart. Moreover, in Jerusalem the Jehoshaphat set the Levites and the priests and of the chief of the fathers of Israel for the judgment of the eternal and for controversies when they returned to Jerusalem. So he's trying to set up a godly reign as much as he can through those people under him who were making judgments among the people. verse 9, he says, And he charged them, saying, Thus shall you do in the fear of the eternal faithfully and with a perfect heart. And there's a lot said there. All the judgments you make, do it always with fear that the one who is not a respecter of persons, that is not a taker of gifts, that is fair, that is always just, always realize he's there second-guessing any decisions you make. And you just saw Ahab die in battle. Think about that. Have some fear of God. Faithfully. What is faithfulness? What's the root word of faithfully? The root word is faith. In great confidence, in great trust, that if you do these things the way God says, your judgments will turn out good. Because you trusted God and followed Him. And with a perfect heart. Not uh, selfishly, but with your heart right. So faith and faithfulness and fear and the right kind of heart go hand in hand in making wise judgments (coughs) in dealing with ourselves and with other people. Now let's go to Psalm 111.10. Because there in Second Chronicles, we have a basis being laid for good judgment. And Jehoshaphat certainly instructed truly there. Now let's go to Psalm 111 and verse 10. The fear of the eternal is the beginning of wisdom. A good understanding have all they that do His commandments, His praise endures forever. So, wisdom and understanding are pretty much synonymous. Understanding how things work, understanding people, understanding God's way and what needs to be done to promote the things of God. But the very basis of wisdom just as we examine the basis of faith being the things that God has made, the basis of wisdom then is fear of the one who made those things that we trust in in faith because we see the things he's done. Fearing the Creator is where you begin to get wisdom. If you don't have a healthy respect, fear, of God, then you have no basis for wisdom, for understanding. It's just not there. Let's see that in Isaiah 62. Now, we would like for God to view us favorably, would we not? We would like to please Him who holds the keys of life and death, eternally. We want to live in the light of His grace. We want to walk in His blessings. We have not been in this period of time in the church, but we want that to be restored. So let's go to Isaiah 66 and begin in verse 1. Thus says the Eternal, The heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. Now, the heavens and the earth are what he created. So it is on the basis of those things that he addresses us here. Look at what I've made. My throne, the heavens, the earth. Where is the house that you build to me, and where is the place of my rest? What can you do for me? We can't really do anything for God. He does for us. Now, a child can't do much for his parents, a little child. He's just there, and he has needs, and the parents take care of that child. God says, for all these things has my hand made, and all these things have been, says the Eternal. <laughs> There's nothing you can do for me. I have had my own house. I have my own throne. I have everything I need right here. The rest of this I created for you. So what are you going to do for me? But to this man will I look, even to him that is poor and of a contrite spirit, the words of Christ in Matthew 5, and trembles at my word. That's fear. Trembling at his word. Now he says, if you want to please me... If you want me to bless you, then you need to have low esteem for your spiritual state, have a contrite heart, one that is recognizing what it is that is deceitful and desperately wicked, and be willing to change that to the way God wants our heart to be, and tremble when you read my words. Be afraid. To cross his words. Be afraid to break them. Now, didn't we read already that fear of God is the beginning of wisdom? And here he says that trembling at his word is the basis for our relationship with him. To be afraid to cross what he has said is the way to live. So there's the very basis of wisdom. Let's pick it up in a few more places and Perhaps we'll understand better as we go. This isn't a great mystery, I don't suppose. It's just one of these basic things that we need to grasp, understand, and learn to live by. Job 28. And here I'll just read verse 28 of Job 28. And the man he said, Behold, the fear of the eternal, that is wisdom. And to depart from evil is understanding. So wisdom and understanding are used here again in the same verse to show that the fear of the eternal is wisdom. Now in Psalm we read that the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the eternal. Here it's put a little bit different, differently and perhaps more inclusively. Fearing God is wisdom. (laughs) And to depart from evil, which is evil is anything contrary to God's word then you have understanding. So, if that which God has created around us is the basis of faith, then the basis of wisdom and understanding is the words that God has given us. So, He gave us two very important testimonies that He is there and that He rewards those who faithfully serve Him. One is the creation around us so that we might understand a God that we cannot see. The other is the words of this book which give us wisdom and understanding if we fear them and keep them. A lot of people have read them, but not applied them to their lives. But hearers and not doers don't get it with God. So, if you want wisdom and understanding, you fear the one who created what you see around you, you go to his words, and you read them, and you fear before them, and conduct your life accordingly. Anything short of that is going to lead you to trouble. Let's go on to the Psalms and read just a few more instances of, of this type of statement. Psalm 19 Uh, verse nine well let's go let's go to verse seven and start there. The law of the eternal is perfect, converting the soul our souls need converting because we are evil and deceitful and desperately wicked to the core, so we need converted from that to peace and love and happiness and joy and commandment keeping uh The testimony of the eternal is sure, making wise the simple. So you have a lot of people on earth today who are simple-minded and they don't understand the connection between man and God and peaceful, happy life as opposed to the kind of life you see all around the earth today. The statutes of the eternal are right, rejoicing the heart. We find joy and happiness when we are obeying God and living according to His ways. The commandment of the eternal is pure, enlightening the eyes, letting us see, letting us understand how to walk, how to act. The fear of the eternal is clean, enduring forever. Now we like cleanliness, don't we? We cleanse our bodies, we cleanse our food, we clean our houses. Occasionally we clean our cars. We clean our minds, do we not? (laughs) I don't know whether that's occasional or not. It needs to be moment to moment. It's clean, enduring forever. There's no filth. There's no badness there. Fearing God is always a proper, clean, good way to go. The judgments of the eternal are true and righteous altogether. So fearing God leads to cleanliness of mind and life. Chapter thirty-four Verse eleven, Psalm thirty-four, eleven. Come, you children, hearken to me. I will teach you the fear of the eternal. It isn't something that comes natural. Do people grow up with a natural fear of God? They may fear the neighbor. They may fear the bully at school. They may fear uh, the cops. But we don't learn fear of God without being taught. Whether it's our parents or church or wherever we we may learn. And here, the Word of God will teach the fear of the eternal. What man is he that desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking guile. Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace. Pursue it. Blessed are the peacemakers, the ones that seek it, that pursue it, who actually make it. The eyes of the eternal are upon the righteous and his ears are open to their cry. Didn't we read in Isaiah 66 that he looks to a man of a contrite heart and a poor spirit that trembles at his word? Same, the same thing here. You want something that's really timely for today? Let's go to Zechariah 8 for a moment. Now, Zechariah is written in the very context of the end time church. It's actually written in the post Armstrong era because it's a prophecy of uh, the church coming together, of the two witnesses, and what the church does from the time they come on the scene until Christ returns. So if there's anything timely in the Bible, well, of course, Daniel and Revelation and all those are timely as well, but this dates itself as being, right now, after Armstrongism, and as we are in this period of time that you and I are living in today. That's the whole context of Zechariah 1 through 8, where we are right here. Let's go down to verse 16. These are the things that you shall do. Right now. This is written to you and me right now. Speak you, every man, the truth to his neighbor. Are we in a period of time right now where neighbors lie to each other? I think we witnessed that. Execute the judgment of truth and peace in your gates. we got two gates right down here coming into the property. We're supposed to be executing truth and peace in our gates. Have we accomplished that Or do we have a problem there? Now, he continues on. This is very, very personal and this is very timely and right now. Let none of you imagine evil in your hearts against his neighbor. I think I read a passage not long ago and it's in Proverbs 6 among other places, I think, where God hates, despises evil imaginations. Now, do we have a... What's the word I'm looking for? Plethora comes to mind. It's not the one I wanted. Do we have a an epidemic? I guess would be a good word to use here. Of people imagining evil against each other. Against their neighbors. Evil imaginations. Something God hates as an abomination is when we imagine evil. Now, that doesn't mean that we can't have... Scenarios or fantasies or imaginations, but they have to be in the light of Philippians 4:8, which are toward truth and peace and righteousness and holiness and patience and love, not fantasies or accusations or imaginations of evil. When we look at people, and we say, "Oh I think that person's evil. And here's why I think they're evil. Here's what I think they're thinking. You don't know what they're thinking. We can impute motives to people. We can bring about all kinds of imagined evils. Now, when you imagine evil against anyone, you are creating an abomination before God. Pure and simple in his own words. we're not done yet and love no false oath people will swear up and down that what they're saying is true and they don't have any idea whether it's true or not it's supposition it's imagination it's speculation and it may be totally false have we seen any of that around us and in us this isn't a time for any of us to be self-righteous. It isn't a time to accuse others of these things that God is saying right here. It's a time for us to examine our own hearts and be sure we, you and me, are not doing any of these things right now as the book of Zechariah is beginning to unfold in front of our very eyes. These are the things God warns us about and says, these things shall you do, and these things you shall not do. Now, why did he write that several thousand years ago? Because he knew it would be happening today. As we sit here in this room, or listen on the telephone, God knew these things would be happening. And that's why he gives a warning. Now, if he understands and knows that something won't be happening at any particular time, then he wouldn't say that it would be. But when when he warns, he knows there's a reason for that warning. That those things will be going on. Now, if we want the feasts, the fasts of the 4th, the 5th, the 7th, and the 10th month to turn into gladness and cheerful feasts, then we need to love the truth and peace, as it says down in verse 19. Now there's wisdom. Do we fear God enough So when He writes something like this to you and me, that applies right now, not just to the world at large, or to the church at large, it, it is written to you and me right now. Now, do we have the beginning of wisdom? Will we fear God and refrain from doing what he says not to do and do what he says to do? It's up to us. Will God look to us or will he look away from us? He's been looking away from us, brethren. We've seen that in countless scriptures. Now, we want him to look to us. We better have some fear and trembling before these words. We're going to walk out of here and go gossip about our neighbors? We're going to walk out of here and accuse them? Will we walk out of here and imagine evil about them? We better not. We better fear before these words. We cannot control anyone else. Our only chance is to control ourselves and do our part. That's all we can do. And we better do that. You want a real, live message? There it is. Can't be more timely than Zechariah 8. Where were we now? Let's go to Proverbs. Pick up a couple here. Uh, Let's go to Proverbs 1. Might as well start at the beginning. Proverbs 1. If I can ever get through Psalms here. Uh, Here, verse 7. The fear of the eternal is the beginning of knowledge. So it's the beginning of wisdom and understanding. And here he says it's the beginning of knowledge. But fools despise wisdom and instruction. Hear, my son, the instruction of your father, and forsake not the law of your mother. So our father in heaven, we're to listen to his instruction, his words, these words, and don't forsake the law of your mother. Well, which law does our mother have? The church is our mother, and she has the law of God. So we need to pay attention to those things. There's where wisdom. There's where knowledge begins. True knowledge begins. That creates wisdom and right instruction, chapter or let's see verse twenty nine of the same chapter, for they that hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the eternal. Now let's go back up let's go back uh, verse twenty seven pick this up. When your fear comes as desolation and your destruction comes as a whirlwind, when distress and anguish come upon you? Now, we've had those things come upon us in the church. We've seen the church decimated, cut down to, God says, 10% of a remnant. We've seen spiritual famine, pestilence, and the sword all around us. And hopefully we're still surviving here. So we've seen the fear of spiritual destruction upon us since mid-80s. And it continues. Continues right here. And we are beginning to see the signs of all this utter destruction that has come on the church happening in our nation right before us. I mean, they're talking about riots, revolutions, and all kinds of things this summer and at the conventions and around the election time. And it's being encouraged, and there are right now demonstrations going on in this country leading toward violence. This very day, yesterday. So when you see this fear coming on you, this is pretty timely, isn't it? We're right in it. Then shall they call upon me, but I will not answer. They shall seek me early, but they shall not find me. For they that hated knowledge... And did not choose the fear of the eternal. They would have none of my counsel and despised all my reproof. Now have most of the church despised his counsel and not accepted his reproof? Over 90% have done just that. He says only a 10% remnant is being faithful. Therefore shall they eat of the fruit of their own way, and be filled with their own devices. For the turning away of the simple shall sway them, and the prosperity of fools shall destroy them. But whoso hearkens to me shall dwell safely, and shall be quiet from fear of evil. So if we fear God, follow and serve Him instead of fearing evil. He says in Isaiah 8, don't fear this new world order that's coming, fear me. So, choosing God's knowledge, choosing His way, choosing His way, and choosing to fear Him is the key to coming through what is bearing down on us like a freight train, safely and without fear of evil. Fear God. And live. Chapter 2, verse 5. If you seek evil like you would seek hidden treasures, then shall you understand the fear of the eternal and find the knowledge of God. It doesn't come easily. Uh, Is it easy to dig the plan of God out of this book? A lot of people have tried over the centuries. Out of the Old Testament, the Pharisees and Sadducees studied the, careful, the Scriptures carefully and never came up with understanding of God. So you can read the words of God over and over and over again, but unless His mind, unless His Spirit comes in and combines with your mind and spirit and opens understanding, you won't get what this book is talking about. You cannot in a thousand lifetimes. So you have to seek God with all your heart, like you would seek silver and hidden treasures. <coughs> he says if we seek, we shall find, right? It says right here, then shall you understand the fear of the eternal and find the knowledge of God. This world does not have a knowledge of God, even the ones that think they do. Pharisees thought they did and didn't. You have to seek God with all your heart. And fear what you read. Let's go to chapter 8. Let's pick it up in verse 10. Receive my instruction and not silver, and knowledge rather than choice gold. Which is going to do us more good in the long run? Silver and gold or knowledge and understanding of God? There's no comparison. Now, we we will use some silver and gold to build the temple. The silver and the gold is God's. And he says to his church in the book of Haggai that it is his, but it is to be used to do his work. But Haggai, for the most part, talks about following, serving, obeying, working for God. It only mentions silver and gold once. The rest of the book about is serving God. For wisdom is better than rubies, and all the things that may be desired are not to be compared to it. (coughs) So is wisdom important? Better than silver and gold? Better than rubies? Better than anything that we might consider precious on this earth and they are not even to be compared. I, wisdom, dwell with prudence and find out knowledge of clever inventions. The fear of the eternal is to hate evil, pride, and arrogancy, and the evil way, and the presumptuous mouth do I hate. Now there again, Christ is basically just quoting from this verse. In Matthew 5, when he talked about the attitudes we ought to have. Contrite, poor in spirit, trying to find and make a way to peace, and to hate pride, arrogancy, evil, and a blabbery mouth, the gossips about its neighbors. Counsel is mine in sound wisdom. I am understanding. I have strength. By me kings reign, and princes decree justice. By me princes rule, and nobles, even all the judges of the earth. I love them that love me, and those that seek me early shall find me. So it's using wisdom personified, and it's speaking of God ultimately, because he is the source of all wisdom and understanding, and he lives in a peaceful kingdom. Now his kingdom was not peaceful for a while. And his throne is not entirely peaceable even yet today. Because Satan, the accuser of the brethren, goes before his throne and accuses us daily. And God does not like that. But he has devised a way to end that and to bring peace to his kingdom. He's going to chain Satan the devil so that he cannot influence anybody. And those who choose to follow him Understand Him and live their lives in the peace of God will be made eternal. And those who will not will be burned up in fire so peace will reign. That's just the way it's going to be. God will have peace. He is a peacemaker and He will do whatever is necessary to have peace. And He's going to do it right here. He says there in Haggai, In this place will I make peace. Now, he's told us he's going to purge rebels. He's told us that he's going to put some into tribulation. But he will have peace in his end-time remnant church. It's going to happen. And I want you and I and everyone who will heed to be part of that. Because God is going to create it. He said so. It's going to happen. Chapter 9, verse 10. The fear of the eternal is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the holy is understanding. So again, fear and our wisdom and understanding, or lump, is beginning with fearing God. This is mentioned in quite a few chapters, quite a few passages in the Bible. So it's a very, very important concept for us to get. Chapter 10, verse 27. The fear of the eternal prolongs days, but the years of the wicked shall be shortened. Fearing God, obeying Him, serving Him, tends to make your days longer. Doing evil and wickedness tend to make your days shorter. That is the way it is. Chapter 14. Verse 26. Do we want to be confident Christians? Paul was happy to be able to say at the end of his life that he had fought the good fight, he'd finished the course, and the kingdom of God was waiting for him. Through all the trials, troubles, tribulations, stonings, shipwrecks, snake bites, all the things that what Paul went through tried his faith. They tried his patience, and he learned wisdom. And in obeying God, he came to have confidence that he would be in the kingdom of God. Now you and I still have doubts, concerns, fears, worries that the things we let go through our minds, that the things we do, could cost us eternal life. So we have a certain amount of queasiness, a certain amount of lack of confidence, or wavering, that it's going to happen. Chapter 14, verse 26. In the fear of the eternal is strong confidence. Not mealy-mouthed confidence. Strong confidence. Fearing God, trembling at His Word, builds strong confidence. Faith, absolute trust, absolute belief that God will save us from our wretchedness. Didn't James say there in verse 6, that if we waver, He won't do anything for us? We have to come to be confident. And that confidence comes through fearing God and doing what He says. Now, when you do what God says, you're automatically going to have more confidence that His purpose for you will work out properly. And when you fail at it, and you're weak, and give in to temptation, then your confidence is rattled and shaken. You're hoping God will forgive. You're begging for mercy. You're, you're praying for patience. And we find we do that pert nerd every day, don't we? Because we know we fail. We know we fall short of the mark. But the more we obey and fear God and keep His commandments the stronger our confidence in our ultimate purpose on earth and life eternal becomes. And his children shall have a place of refuge. Now that smacks of what we read a little earlier. We'll have no fear of evil because God will protect us. So if we have strong faith and endurance, not giving in, not wavering, but believing in God, we'll have a place of refuge. The fear of the eternal is a fountain of life to depart from the snares of death. His water, His Word, they're used synonymously. A fountain pouring forth the Word of God will help us depart from the snares of death. You go out on the desert, you don't have a fountain or an oasis or a source of water, you die. And spiritually, if you don't look to the source, the fountain, the words of God, you'll die. But fearing God and trembling before His Word is a fountain of life that leads to life. Chapter 15, verse 16 here. Better is little with the fear of the eternal than great treasure and trouble therewith. Now, we're not rich people here, are we, physically? barely getting by on Social Security or a job that doesn't pay enough to live on, really, or whatever. That's the way America is today. But we do have a knowledge of God. We have an understanding of what He's doing, how He's doing it, why He's doing it, and even where He's doing it, and pretty much when He's doing it, don't we? It's better to have fear of God and understand what He's doing than being like this world around us. Verse 33 of the same chapter. The fear of the eternal is the instruction of wisdom, and before honor is humility. Not arrogance, not pride, not I'm better than you, you're worse than me, or however we want to term it, or evil imaginations, or false oaths, or whatever form of accusation we have against people. We're not qualified to do that to judge those things. That's God's judgment. We're to be humble and meek and contrite before His Word. And we will not be given honor in the kingdom of God unless it is presaged by humility and meekness, the things Christ tells us to have in Matthew 5. Uh, verse 6 to chapter 16. It's close. Verse uh, 16 of 16. Or no, 16.6 I want first. By mercy and truth, iniquity is purged, and by the fear of the eternal, men depart from evil. Fearing God and His words helps us depart from evil. And we all have evil. Verse 16. How much better is it to get wisdom than gold, and to get understanding rather to be chosen than silver? Repeating what we read earlier. Uh Oh, He's going to send us a city with gold. 1,500 miles cubed. With streets of gold. But we don't need any physical gold to get there. We need spiritual gold and silver to get there. And then there will be all the physical gold you could need or want or even imagine. Streets paved with it. That's a plenty. But it takes... Fear of God and spiritual gold and silver to attain to the other. Proverbs 19, verse 23. The fear of the eternal tends to life, and he that has it shall abide satisfied. He shall not be visited with evil. So God will protect us from evil, and He will let us be satisfied with the things that we do have. Didn't Christ say that in the Sermon on the Mount? To be satisfied with the things we have and not to be uh, agitating for things we don't have. Land, houses, control, power, whatever it is that we might get greedy for, God says don't do that. Don't go there. Be content with what you have. Do you just have to own your land, or are you content with a lease? Are you content to live there, or do you have to have something else? This stuff fits. It works. Chapter 22, verse 4. By humility and the fear of the eternal are riches and honor and life. All things that we would desire. All things that are good. Chapter 23, verse 17. I'm about done with these. Let not your heart envy sinners, but be you in the fear of the eternal all the day long. Don't envy what people who are lying and cheating and defrauding and taking and grasping and trying to get. Don't envy that. But live in the fear of God. All the time. Let's go to Isaiah 11. See a good example of what God's trying to tell us. Isaiah 11. You probably are familiar with that chapter. Quite familiar. But I want to refer to a verse here. Or two. Chapter 11. And there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his root. And the spirit of the eternal shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. Wisdom and understanding come from the spirit of God. And God gives his spirit to them that obey, Acts 5.29. He doesn't give it to anyone else. The spirit of counsel and might. The spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the eternal. So to have a well-rounded, balanced, spiritual mentality, the fear of the eternal, and wisdom and understanding, all go together. And shall make him of quick understanding in the fear of the eternal. And he shall not judge after the sight of his eyes, neither reprove after the hearing of his ears, but with righteousness, like we saw we need to do in Zechariah 8, shall he judge the poor, and reprove with equity for the meek of the earth. He'll give... Equitable, kind, gentle reproof to the meek. And he will smite the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips shall he slay the wicked. So Christ is going to come with a right attitude. He feared his Father when he walked this earth, didn't he? He constantly said, of myself I can do nothing. The Father does it all. I fear him. I will do what he says Even when I fear dying, being crucified, being tortured, being killed, I'll fear God more than man. He tells us that we're to fear God rather than man. Now you're beginning to get smart. (laughs) You you do that. You're starting to wise up. You're getting there. I want to go to one more passage and... Look at it a little more in depth in closing. uh, I say in closing, it'll probably take a few minutes here, but that's okay. It's Sabbath. Uh, Isaiah 33. I'll try not to take too long on it, but uh, let's understand something here. This is a really good chapter in the light of what we're talking about today. Isaiah 33. Woe to you that spoiled and were not spoiled. Now, have we spoiled the church of God? We weren't spoiled. Spoiled means like in war, where you, you spoil a, a, a nation or a city. You you take the spoil. You defeat it. You destroy it and take the spoil. So he says, Woe to you that destroy things. You weren't destroyed. You weren't spoiled. Woe to anybody that destroys What God may have built. Satan is the destroyer and he is the accuser of the brethren. So he says, Woe to you that destroy. Now, the attitude of any human being should be to build. That's what Christ told us. Build peace. Build harmony. Build closeness. Build oneness in the family. Not separation and division and one member talking about how bad the other member is. Shall the hand say to the foot, you're not worthy to be a part of the body? That isn't an attitude we're to have. We're not to destroy the body that Christ has built. We better be very, very careful in not taking any thought or action that spoils. A piece of fruit that's spoiled is rotten. It's worthless. It gets thrown away. It gets eaten by the birds or just rots. But we don't want to be spoilers. We don't want to tear down anything that is built. And And deal treacherously, and they dealt not treacherously with you. Now, we can deal treacherously with others, but what if they didn't deal treacherously with us? What if they didn't defraud us? What if they didn't cheat us? What if they didn't take from us, but tried to help us, and then we deal treacherously with them? Scary business. When you shall cease to spoil, you shall be spoiled. And when you shall make an end to deal treacherously, they shall deal treacherously with you. In other words, you're going to get or you're going to reap what you sowed. Uh, When it turns around, you're going to get and reap what you sowed. That's an axiom of God. O Eternal, be gracious to us. We have waited for you. Now, this, this again is a very real now prophecy. Be you their arm every morning, our salvation also in the time of trouble. Now, we're in the time of trouble in the church, and we're in time of trouble in the world. And we need Him to be our salvation. At the noise of the tumults, the people fled. At the lifting up of yourself, the nations were scattered. Now, God is letting Satan do a lot of destruction in the church, and in the world. And then Christ himself is going to arise. And he is going to hasten that destruction. And he's even sicking Satan on us like uh, he did on Job. So even though Satan is destroying the church today, and he is working at destroying the nation today, he's using human leaders... He's using demons, and he's using Satan, God is, to do it. So everything that's happened to the church and everything that's happening to the nation and the world is of God. Nothing that happened to Job was not of God. In fact, God says, it's not of me that you kill Job. Don't you do it. Now it is of me that you kill his kids. And take his flocks and herds, give him boils, make his wife tell him, curse God and die, turn her against him. Everything that happened, the evil to Job, God was behind. He sicks Satan on Job. But he says, it's not my will that you kill him. You don't do that. Satan didn't. So what we see happening in the church and in the world is of God. And people are going to run scared. Revelation says they'll hide in the rocks of the mountains, hoping the rocks fall on them, and in caves. Maybe some of these bunkers they're building right now, the rich, they're going to get down there and they're not going to get along with each other and they're going to start running out of stuff and there's still going to be evil going on and they can't come out three or four or six months later like they hoped. And they may be crying for those bunkers that they built that gave in on them. Who knows? And your spoil, verse four, shall be gathered like the gathering of the caterpillar, and as the running to and fro of locusts shall he run upon them. So, like a locust plague, God says trouble is going to come on the world. The Eternal is exalted, for He dwells on high. He has filled Zion with judgment and righteousness. So he's going to get after the whole world, but he's going to fill one place, Zion, with judgment and righteousness. Peace will he make there, Haggai. And wisdom and knowledge shall be the stability of your times. Wisdom and knowledge will be what give us stability. Fearing God... Keeping his commandments, having knowledge of him and doing what he says, will give us stability during this horrid time and strength of salvation, confidence. The fear of the eternal is his treasure. He treasures us fearing him and beginning to learn wisdom and understanding so that we can have stability during these tough times that are already upon us spiritually and are upon, coming upon the nation and the world physically. There's where stability comes. Behold, their valiant ones shall cry without. The ambassadors of peace shall weep bitterly. There won't be any. The highways lie, lie waste. The wayfaring man ceases. No travel. Afraid to go anywhere. Get killed if you do. He has broken the covenant, he has despised the cities, he regards no man. God is going to come down hard. He hates cities anyway. The earth mourns in languages, Lebanon is ashamed and hacked down, Sharon is like a wilderness, and Bashan and Carmel shake off their fruits. I could have tied that in with that sermon on the, the harvest time being the time that the fruits are shaken off, the destruction comes. Now, when the sh- fruits are being shaken off, will I rise, says the eternal. Now will I be exalted. Now will I lift up myself. God has been sitting in the background. He's been holding back. He's been waiting. Talks about Christ arising and doing His mighty work, His mysterious and His wonderful work. Well, they've been sitting back, watching, letting Satan do his thing. But then God is going to be exalted, and he's going to show the world that he's God. By the destruction that comes, by the hidden treasures that he says he's going to bring forth that will show them from the east to the west that he is God, he has different ways that he's going to bring forth his exaltation. You shall conceive chaff, you shall bring forth stubble. Your breath as fire shall devour you. Anything you do is going to end up in your destruction, he says, speaking of the world. And the people shall be as the burnings of lime, as thorns cut up shall it be burned in the fire. What does Isaiah 40 say to the watchman who cries in the wilderness? He says the people are as grass. That's the message. They're going to be withered and burned up. Same thing he's saying right here. Hear, you that are far off, what I have done, and you that are near, acknowledge my might. The sinners in Zion are afraid. Now, he's going to bring people to Zion, and he's going to bring peace and righteousness and holiness in Zion. But there are going to be some who are sinners there. Fearfulness has surprised the hypocrites. So among those who are there, there will be sinners and hypocrites. Who among us shall dwell with the devouring fire? Who among us shall dwell with everlasting burnings? God's going to sort it out. He will purge the rebels from Zion and hypocrites who say, but do not do. Now, verse 15, He that walks righteously and speaks uprightly, he that despises the gain of oppressions, oppressing others to get whatever they want, that shakes his hands from holding of bribes, that stops his ears from hearing of blood and shuts his eyes from seeing evil. Hear no evil, see no evil. Now that says that anyone who does not stop his ears from hearing of destruction on others and who does not shut his eyes from seeing evil is an hypocrite. Now seeing evil in others... And evil imaginations of Zechariah 8 are the same thing. Not good. This is pretty serious stuff here. He that does shut his eyes from seeing and imagining evil, he shall dwell on high. His place of defense shall be the munitions of rocks. Bread shall be given him. His waters shall be sure. Read Isaiah 54 and 55. God's going to take care of us if we do these things. Your eyes shall see the king and his beauty. They shall behold a land that is very far off, or far away, or of far distances. This land we're living in is a land of far distances. Your heart shall meditate terror. <laughs> terror is going to be all around. And your heart is going to meditate, it's going to think about it. Can you not think of terror when you see all these things about nuclear weapons and uh, NATO and the U.S. establishing missiles right on the Russian border and and Muslims encroaching on all Western nations and starting to hack people to death? Can you not contemplate fear and terror? Where is the scribe? Where is the receiver? Where is he that counted the towers? Towers of what? Zion? Zion? You shall not see a fierce people, a people of a deeper speech than you can perceive, of a stammering tongue that you cannot understand. God says he'll protect you. Look upon Zion, the city of our solemnities, the place of God's holy days. Your eyes shall see Jerusalem, a quiet habitation. He says he's going to bring peace. He's going to be a wall of fire around it, and the enemies of the world and Satan cannot encroach upon it. A tabernacle that shall not be taken down. Not one of the stakes thereof shall ever be removed, neither shall any of the cords thereof be broken. But there, the, glory, the glorious eternal will be to us a place of broad rivers and streams. So this morphs from his protection of his people in the end time and putting a wall of fire around them to the time when the Father and the Son will rule on the earth in the millennium And that peace will then become not just in Zion, but worldwide. Broad rivers and streams, wherein shall go no galley with oars, neither shall gallant ship pass thereby. That means no warships. Oars were used in warships to make them fast. For the Eternal is our judge. The Eternal is our lawgiver. The Eternal is our king. He will save us. Now, is the fear of the eternal the beginning of wisdom or not? Your tacklings are loosed. They could not well strengthen their mast. They could not spread the sail. Then is the prey of a great spoil divided. The lame take the prey. In other words, all these warships and machines and things of mass destruction that man has will be like a ship with a loose sail. It can't go anywhere. It can't do anything. And the inhabitants shall not say, I am sick. The people that dwell therein shall be forgiven their iniquity. Now let's recap James 1 a little bit, verse 5 and 6, where he tells us if we lack wisdom, that we are to ask God for it and to ask in confidence not wavering, but to fear him is the beginning of wisdom and understanding, and it's what leads to greater faith. So wisdom comes from the Word of God. It is the basis of wisdom, to hear, to read, to see what God says and follow it. And the basis of faith is what he has created around us so that we realize that it's This had to be made by something far more intelligent than us. So our faith is based on the creation of God around us, and our wisdom is based on what we might not learn from trees and stars, but from what God said about himself, he who created the earth that is around us. So faith needs to be understood in the light of true wisdom. The faith in God really means nothing unless we recognize and see God and begin to do what He says so that our faith can be rewarded.